Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to return to our passage that we looked at last week. I want to continue on in this vein. And uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 18 and read through verses, verse 24, 18 through 24 of Hebrews 12. The author says, you have not come to Mount Zion, or you have not, I'm sorry, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or of such a voice, such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Then he says this, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Or as we quoted last week from the NIV, I believe it was, or the ESV, it was uh, festal gathering. I love that. Uh, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 is contrasting these two mountains that Scripture speaks of. Again, we talked last week, touched on this in the ancient world. Mountains were looked at as where the gods dwelled. That was, uh, you know, Baal had a mountain. Uh, drew, or, uh, the Israel, Israelites had first Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And then David conquered Mount Zion and it became Mount Zion was the, the mountain of God. So both of those mountains were referred to as the Mount of God. And again, the, the idea in the ancient mind was that the mountains were where heaven and earth converged. The mountains disappeared up into the, the clouds and it's where the gods would come down. Now, many people look at that and say, well, God was speaking anthropomorphically. He was, he was trying to relate with us as people, and so he was speaking into this pagan mythology. And I'm telling you, that's not what's going on here. Literally, ancient pagan theology was bouncing off of the reality that God established. God did meet with Moses on Mount Sinai. And Mount Zion is the mount from which God rules and reigns to this day. But the author of Hebrews tells us it's not a mountain that we can touch. It is a spiritual mountain. And so there is something about this metaphor of a mountain from which God extends his scepter and extends his rule. And so ancient, the ancient people understood this. Matter of fact, there is a passage. Uh, God, in, the, in ancient literature, I'm, I'm talking way back into the Masoretic texts and the Ugaritic writings and so forth, the places of the pagan gods or the demonic gods were the, the gardens and the mountains. But God established a garden called Eden, and that's where they get this idea. It was through the oral history coming out of Eden that people understood that God wanted a dwelling place on earth. Does that make sense? And so it's not that God's accommodating this pagan mythology. It's that pagan mythology was rooted in the ancient 
idea of God having an Eden. And in Ezekiel, there's a passage in which the Garden of Eden is referred to as a mountain. So that's why the ancients, that the, uh, the, the pharaohs would, would build these uh, pyramids, which were fake mountains. And the Babylonians, the Chaldean people, uh, they, they built these ziggurats. They were fake mountains. And even the hanging gardens of Babylon, they were reaching for God. And it became the seedbed of the occult of trying to get to God outside of God's dictated ways. But that doesn't negate the fact that God had met with Moses on a mountain and he refers to a mount, Mount Zion, from which he rules and reigns from today. But we see in this passage, Mount uh, he's the first part of this passage, the one that was shaking and quaking and the thunder and the lightning. And Moses said, I'm so terrified. You know, he, he's, he, he, was, he was shaking in his boots. That is a reference to Sinai and, and that Moses met with God on Sinai and the Lord spoke to him there out of the burning bush and said, you are going to bring my people back to meet with me here. And so he took them out of Egypt into the wilderness and they met with God at the mountain. And the the... the uh, the instructions to Moses for the people of Israel was that you can only get so close. You stand at the base, but don't touch it. Even your animals will be struck dead if they touch the mountain. And literally this dark cloud came and there was fire and thunder and lightning and a loud trumpet sounded and they heard the voice of God and the place quaked and it was scary. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, that's not what we've come to. He juxtaposes it over against the relationship that we have, the mountain that we come to, and he says it is Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is another phrase for Jerusalem. Again, throughout Scripture, they talk about Mount Zion being the loftiest of peaks. That is, that grandiose description of Jerusalem is a spiritual description because it's not in the physical. Uh, and so we have this mount of God that God rules and reigns from. Psalm 110 and passages like that talk about God extending his scepter from Mount Zion and ruling and reigning in the earth. So we have this picture of Mount Zion in this chapter of Hebrews as a picture of the new covenant and the relationship, what we're entered into, what we enter into through Jesus Christ. And so we have two mediators, we have two Mountains, we have two priesthoods, we have two temple structures, and they're juxtaposed over against one another. You have Mount Zion, the law, and Moses as the mediator. And then in the New Covenant, we have Mount Zion. That one is Mount Sinai. This is Mount Zion. We have Jesus as the mediator. We have the Melchizedek priesthood as opposed to the Levitical priesthood, uh, the priest king of which Jesus is a priest king and extends that to us as priests and kings. And then we have the tabernacle of David, which was a, uh, the, 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 the structure where everybody had access to the presence of God. And so it explains why David, as an old covenant man, recognized as a prophet, a priest, and a king, David, foreshadowing Jesus as the great prophet, priest, and king. It explains why David, being of the tribe of Judah, could handle holy things, could do things that was against the law for anybody to do but an, a Levitical priest. And David not only got away with it, he was congratulated by God. God loved that about David. What, da what Saul did out of disobedience, sacrificing to God, David did the same type of things. He ate the showbread. He wore a linen ephod. 
He had the audacity to ask for forgiveness of murder and adultery, the two sins, the, the only two under the old covenant. There was no forgiveness of sins. And David had the audacity to ask God for forgiveness, and God granted him forgiveness. Why? Because David discovered another priesthood. That's why David said in Psalm 24, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. David is asking, is there another way in? He knew the only people that could ascend and stand were the Levites. But David was saying there's got to be another way, and he discovered what he referred to in Psalm 110 as the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews tells us the order of Melchizedek is the eternal priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood was a temporary one. It started with Moses, ended with Jesus. But the Melchizedek priesthood is an eternal priesthood. This guy named Melchizedek entered into it, It was named after him. Jesus functioned in the order of Melchizedek, and you and I function in the order of Melchizedek. It's very important that you and I understand that because Melchizedek was a priest king. It was a unique priesthood where the role of kingly authority and priestly intercession were merged into one. So we not only stand pleading the case of fallen mankind, but we have the authority to turn around and release the edicts of God and release the heavenly host on the situations on the earth. It's what Psalm 103 says, that the angels obey the voice of his word. It's your voice, his word, because you have been invested with authority, Peter tells us. We are are kings and priests, a kingdom of priests, royal priesthood. And so all of this is very important, and David is our great example. So we have in this passage this contrast between these two realities. I love the NIV. Uh, Over it, it says, I forget, it said something about the fearful kingdom versus the joyful kingdom, or the fearful mountain versus the joyful mountain. The, The contrast could not be more different. Moses, who spoke to God as a man speaks to a friend face to face, trembled in fear, lest feeling he's gonna lose his life. And the mountain we come to, it says, there is a myriad of angels in festal gathering. It means the angels are partying. Where we come, the angels are rejoicing. It's a totally different covenant. And he's trying to contrast these two for us to realize what we come into. So that's what we talked about last week. And we talked about how this is the reality that we step into when we come together in worship. What the writer of Hebrews frames for us according to the word, this reality that when we come here, it is Mount Zion. It's the city of God, the the heavenly Jerusalem, that when we worship, God carries his throne, his mobile throne. It says he inhabits the praise of his people. Literally, it means he enthrones himself in the praises of his people. We We have audience with the king when we worship. It's not us down here just singing nice songs. We're convening heaven. The courts of heaven are convened as we gather to worship in his name. And we need to understand that because we can leverage this for tremendous good in the earth. When we come together... We are convening the courts of heaven so God can do business on behalf of the kingdom of God. It's very important. And so we have this picture. Let's read through it again. He says this. You have come to Mount Zion. 
the city of the living God. It's the dwelling place of God on earth. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is Mount Zion, so much so that Jesus rules from a spiritual mountain named after the mountain that David conquered when he first united the two kingdoms. It's called Mount Zion, but it's a spiritual mountain, he tells us. We know from Scripture that Jesus literally rules from a throne, the throne of David. We know, again, that's not a physical throne in Jerusalem. That is a spiritual throne that was established by this man of God that was after God's heart. Something of authority was established in the spiritual realm. And literally, God in the flesh, King Jesus, sits on that throne and rules and reigns in the earth. So we have this heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. So there's a sense in which that is the kingdom, but there's also a sense in which whenever the people of God gather, they're establishing Mount Zion. Every church is to be a dwelling place, the city of God. It's to be a patch of ground on the earth that's sanctified by the worship of the saints, that literally becomes holy ground from which God can begin to invade the earth. We are a colony of heaven. We have dual citizenship. And we are a colony. We are ambassadors from another world to represent the kingdom of God. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. Then he says this, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly or the angels, a myriad of angels in festal gathering. When we come, there is a, a partnership with the angelic and the saints of God. And we need to understand that. Your prayers fuel angelic ministry. Your prayers are the marching orders of the angels. Your declarations, when you hear the word of God and you release the word of God through decrees, the angels pick up that word and begin to build the prophetic future that you declare. There is a partnership. I had a friend that was over in Europe one time and he was a very prophetic gentleman, and he was uh, going through an old church in Scotland and bumped in. He, he, was, he was back behind the scenes, and he bumped into an angel. I don't remember if he saw it. This guy was given to those things. But he said, he asked the Lord, he said, God, what is this angel doing here? And the Lord said, he's, he's unemployed. He's been assigned to this church, but this church hasn't prayed prayers in hundreds of years. I don't know, you know, we don't get to see the stats, but I'd like to think when we get to heaven and we see the statistics for Ankeny, that the unemployment rate among the angels is very low. <laughs> we want the angels to be busy. We want them to be excited. Oh, I'm getting assigned to that church, that crazy bunch. Amen? To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Or, or the, the ESV, a very accurate translation says already enrolled in heaven. I, I love that. It's the church of the firstborn. That's you and I. So when we gather, there, we're, we, there's this mountain. There, it's the heavenly dwelling place of God. God's establishing it on earth. There are angels here, and then we, we're here. We are already enrolled in heaven. My membership is already there. I'm already, I'm already registered. I've already got my ticket. I'm going and we are, we're already enrolled, and we're the, ga the, the, the company of the firstborn. And then he says this. It's such a fascinating thing. 
You have come to the God, the judge of all. And so he then refers to the Father being there. You would have thought that that would have been the first thing on the list. But he says, now we come before God. God dwells in this atmosphere created by the saints. God, and it says, the judge of all. I forget the theological uh, wording for that type of phrase, but it's, like a, it, it's qualifying something that's already obvious. It's saying God, and then it adds the judge of all. And anytime something is mentioned in Scripture, there's a very good reason for it. The author is trying to highlight that God is the judge of all in this context. Why? Number one, because those of us who have been qualified and are already enrolled, already registered in heaven, the God we come before, who is the judge, has already found you righteous and enrolled you in heaven. Whereas the Israelites, they came and they trembled in fear. And there is times where the presence of God will come in that flavor, if you will. There have been times where I've been in God's presence where I didn't want to look up because I was afraid. It, it, he was so thick and so real in the room. And I just, I, I just, it was like I was looking for something to crawl under. The holiness of God came. But that is the God who is the judge that has already enrolled us and welcomes us into his presence. And then he says this, and this is where we landed last week, where we ended up. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And that's a reference to the saints who have already gone on before. Now, we, we talked last week about how the Apostles' Creed, one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed is, we believe in the communion of the saints. That phrase is rooted in this verse. And it's something that we as Pentecostals don't often talk about. Now, the Catholics talk about it. Matter of fact, they take it a little farther than I personally believe Scripture does. But the Presbyterians and Methodists used to preach on this, the communion of the saints. The idea of the communion of the saints is there is a partnership, there is a, a working relationship between those who have gone on before us and those who are left behind. It's saying literally that when we gather, we are mixing our worship and our prayers with the praise and worship and the prayers of the saints around the throne. Now, I know that probably makes some of you nervous there. You're like, well, pastor, I'm not sure about that. I'm telling you, it's right there in the Word. And this is Orthodox Christianity, uh, validated by the early church fathers. It's been held as Orthodox Christian, you know, uh, Orthodox doctrine for centuries. We just don't talk about it a lot as uh, Pentecostal Christians, evangelicals often. But the fact is, the greatest prayer meeting in human history is going on around the throne. It says the martyrs are under the altar crying out, how long, how long? They didn't disengage when they went to heaven. Those that, that we, we love, those that have gone before, some of those that we've lost from our own congregation, Linda Schreer, Pastor Bob Phillips, those that have gone on before it. Bob and Linda aren't less involved. They're more involved than ever. They are more invested in this thing because they see, they, they, with their own eyes, they've handled those things. They understand what's really on the line. And they are engaged in the battle for us, with us. They're praying. Now, we don't pray to the saints. We, we have one mediator, 
This script, Peter, uh, uh, Paul said to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But that doesn't negate the fact that the saints are worshiping and praying around the throne. And you and I, we mix our worship with them. There is a partnership, there is a communion of the saints. And that's what he's saying here. And those of you that have lost a loved one, I want to encourage you, when we come together in worship, you're mixing your worship. You may have, some of you, your, your spouse has gone to be with the Lord. And you used to worship with your spouse. I'm telling you, if they're with Jesus, you still do. We worship around the throne and he drinks in our praise. And then he says this. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of angels, or of Abel. So we're gonna, next week we'll look at the blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What I want to look at just a few moments this morning is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. The word mediator there is an interesting word. If I, can, I wrote it down here if I can find it. it uh, I wrote it down phonetically so I can say it right. You know, if you can't say it right, you just say it fast and it sounds like you know what you're saying. Uh, mesites is the Greek word. It means one who mediates, arbitrates, intervenes between two in order to make or restore a relationship. Interestingly enough, it comes from the Greek word mesos, which means to stand between, which is literally what intercessor means. It's the one who stands between. And this word was also used of a, a someone who translates. Well, you know, I, I, love, I love preaching in other languages. I love preaching and having someone translate in another language because it, I found it makes me a more exact preacher. I'm more measured in my words because I'll say something, they're talking, and I have time to rephrase, you know, kind of structure the next sentence. And it, you get in that flow and you just, and I find when I get back home, I'm a little, little more measured in my speaking. I think I need to go on another trip here. <laughs> but it has that idea of somebody who translates. Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between. He stands between. He is the mediator of a new covenant. I find it fascinating that that word means translator as well because Jesus came as what? The word. He came literally as God's translation of what he was thinking. He is the logos. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says. What is a word? Why, why, does, why does John use that strange terminology? Jesus as the word. John didn't invent this. It goes way back into the Old Testament. The Jewish people understood there was a physical manifestation of, God, of the Godhead that would show up in the Old Testament as the word. That's why the prophets would say, and the word of the Lord appeared to me. It was the word of the Lord that came to them, but it was the word of the Lord manifesting to them, receiving the word of the Lord. The idea of the, a word, a word is literally a thought wrapped in sound so that the, the, the uh, idea can be transferred from one mind to another. That's what a word is. 
And God had thoughts that he wanted to communicate to us. So what did he do? He wrapped it in flesh in the form of his son. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1 that now in times past, he spoke to us through prophets and teachers. But now he speaks to us by his word. Not just through his word, but by his word. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the final word. No more needs to be said. Now, we're still talking because we're still unpacking the word. But it all goes back to him who is the word. He is the manifestation of God's thought. Everything Jesus did, not just what he said, but what he did was God talking. That's why we can study the gospels and look at how Jesus acted. And we, when we see how Jesus acted, we realize that's how the father is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so we study the behavior of Jesus. And everything he's doing, it's the Father speaking through. One of the best pictures is John chapter 8, where the woman is caught in adultery. And they drag her out there and they said she was caught in the very act. What a horrifying thing for a young Jewish girl to be caught doing in that conservative Jewish culture. What she was doing was, uh, 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 culturally, it wasn't acceptable like it is today. She was violating the law. I don't know her backstory. We don't know anything about her. We just know she got caught, and we know that they didn't bring the young man with her. She was looked at as the temptress, and he was let off the hook. And they drugged this young woman into the public square. I doubt if they let her get fully dressed and fixed up. Like, comb your hair, we're going to take you and stone you. She's caught in the act. Can you imagine the horror? She realizes she's caught. Most likely, now I'm just, I'm I'm assuming here. Most likely it was someone related to one of these religious leaders, and that's how they, that she was with, that's how they stumbled upon her in the very act. And they didn't bring their son or their cousin or their nephew. They just brought the girl. And they drug her out there and they threw her on the ground in front of Jesus. And they said, she was caught in the very act. They were trying to trap him to see if he would back what the law said. She was caught in the very act. What do you say, Jesus? Can you imagine what that young girl was going through? She was terrified. She was ashamed. She was humiliated. She knew she was in sin. She knew she was wrong. But she had been publicly exposed in such an intimate moment. And now she's laying in the streets knowing that the law says she is to be stoned to death. And she knows that the people who drug her there had every intention of doing so. And as she's laying there at the feet of this man, she's surely heard of. Jesus, this man, who's, this rabbi who's going around and people are being healed. And they said his, his teaching is so profound. And she's, she's feeling such shame. She's thinking, there's no way. I'm dead. And Jesus bends down and he begins to write in the dirt. There's a lot of speculation on what Jesus was doing that, at that moment. Some people think he was writing the sins of those standing around. Could be. Years ago, Pastor Bob Phillips, I would just mentioned that, went to be with the Lord a year and a half ago, or two years ago now. I remember Bob preaching that he believed what Jesus was writing was, he was writing things to her. As he's talking to them, he said he was writing in the dirt because that's where her eyes were. She was looking down 
with tremendous shame. So Jesus was writing things in the dirt to her. And then he looked up at everybody. He said, he who was without sin cast the first stone. He gave them permission to fulfill the law. But he just said, the ones that have the right to do so are the perfect ones. And I love how the passage says, the older ones left first. You know? When you're younger, you're a little more cocky and sure of your opinions, you know? The older ones, they got under the waters and realized, uh-oh, wow. oh, man, you know, that roast is, you know, they kind of snuck out, you know? They're, and then the young guys who are, you know, leading the cause look around, and the older guys are gone, and so they kind of wander off nervously. And then Jesus asked her, he said, woman, where are thine accusers? Not only did the law give Jesus every right to stone that woman, but Jesus' own standard, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. He had the every right to pick up a stone, but we have not come to Mount Sinai where we stand on the edge, afraid to even touch it, and lightning and thunder and flame. But we have come to Mount Zion with myriad of angels and festal gathering, with Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And he looked at her and he says, she looks up, and something about Jesus she knew. She said, they're gone, Lord. She knew he wasn't included among them. And what does he say? Go and do likewise. It's a beautiful thing. I've often wondered what happened to that woman. What a beautiful story. But by that, it's not just what Jesus said. Everything he did in that scenario was the Father speaking loud and clear his heart towards fallen humanity. Jesus is the translator of God's thought. He came to live it out and embody it. So if you want to know how God the Father is, look at God the Son. I had a good friend. We used to be in ministry together and, and, uh, at a ministry I used to be at. And he talked about, he said, I, I, have a, I have a good relationship with Jesus, but I struggle in my relationship with the Father. Because he'd had this awkward relationship with his dad. But Jesus came to be the mediator to reconcile us to the Father. And many of us struggle in our relationship with the Father because we have this mindset of how a Father is and how God interacts with us. But Jesus came to reconcile you to the Father. He sent the Spirit to be poured out upon you, the Spirit of adoption that causes you to say, Abba, Father. One of the primary functions of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, one of the primary responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to pour the love of God abroad in your heart, Romans 5. It says he sheds the love of God abroad in our heart. It causes us to see God as a loving Father. And Romans 8 says it's by the Spirit we cry what we sang, Abba, Father. That phrase of affection there's a lot of believers who still see themselves coming to Mount Sinai. They know that they're already registered in heaven. They know that's where they're going, but they really do see God through the lens of Mount Sinai. They still look at God as the hard taskmaster. They walk in the fear of God, but have, they don't walk in the love of God. And we need the fear of God. It's not that the New Testament 
uh, erases this. Matter of fact, the language, the, 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 the structure of the, the sentence in the Greek, it literally means you have, we, we have not come to Mount Sinai as a destination. We came through the law. The law led us to Christ. There is the, the fear of the Lord. That's a foundation in our life. But we have come to Mount Zion with Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. And he juxtapositions this is over against Moses. Moses is the mediator of the old covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of the new. I've got nine minutes. Let me unpack this. You can't really understand Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant until you look at how Moses was the mediator of the old. In Daniel, I mean Daniel, Deuteronomy 9, 10, right in that, that path, 8, 9, 10, Moses takes the children of Israel to Mount Sinai. You remember that? And so he leads them there, and he goes up on the mountain, and he's, you know, the, the thunder, the lightning. All of this they experience, they see it's, they're terrified, and Moses disappears up into the fiery cloud. And then he's gone. Forty days if you've ever seen Charlton Heston's version, who was the, the one actor that was down there? He was always causing division. Who, remember the, who was that guy's name, anybody? Anyway, I always thought, man, why don't they just kill the guy? It's a movie. I know, I know as a pastor I shouldn't think that, but man, the guy was causing problems. And so he was, he's up there trying to divide the people, and, and, us, you know, and Moses' mom stands up, he's the voice of God. It's so dramatic, that old, old Hollywood, and all the compassion of a mother, he says, just real sarcastically, you know. And so they begin to worship the golden calf. They, 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 uh, Aaron forms the golden calf, and they're worshiping it. And Moses is up on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, and then the Lord says this to Moses. He said, all right, Moses, it's time to go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt are, are now in rebellion. I, I love to see the relationship between Moses and God. They're, they keep, it's like a parent, you know, when my kids are being good, I'll say, well, don't we have great kids? But if they're be, misbehaving, I'll say, Kath, your children, you know. It's kind of what God and Moses are doing. Mo, God says to Moses, your people who you brought out of Egypt. And Moses goes down and Joshua's down the mountain a ways and he intercepts Moses and, and, and Mo, Joshua says, it's the sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, that is not the sound of victory nor defeat. He said, it's the sound of singing that I hear. And they get down there, and Moses is, he's brokenhearted. He can't believe, because of, of where he's just been, he has been in the presence of God 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no water, in the fire. And they're thinking, surely he's consumed. And they so quickly forgot what they witnessed and turned from God. And now Moses is coming down. And it says his face literally shone with the glory of God. And he was so mad, he took these, these tablets carved by the finger of God and he smashed them. And he told the, there's a couple of passages that tied this together. He told the Levites, he said, strap a sword on your side and go throughout the, the, the camp. And they began to kill those who were, who were participating in debauchery. And that's how they got the priesthood. There's all kinds of questions in these passages. And then Moses crushes it, he burns the, the, the golden calf, crushes it, puts it in the water and makes them drink it. And then it says he went back up the mountain for another 40 days. 
And he's on his face because God said, I am going to destroy them and I will make a new nation out of you, Moses. And Moses stays in the pocket of intercession. He is so broken. It's fascinating that when Moses was in God's presence and God was angry, Moses was saying, no, Lord, withhold your anger. Don't kill him. And then Moses would go down and get angry himself. It's so much like two parents. But then he'd go back up and he'd he'd cry out to God on their behalf. And there's this 40 days. So the scenario, I I don't think I can communicate to you. 40 days, he's up on the mountain in the glory of God. Then he goes down, breaks the tablets, goes up another 40 days, lays in the dirt for 40 days. I want you to think, 40 days ago. That's a long time. If you've ever been on a 40-day fast, I'm telling you, that's a long time. to be. He'd been on an 80-day fast. He hasn't drank or eaten anything for 80 days. It was a supernatural sustenance. He is, he is just skin and bone by this time. But he is so desperate before God. He's laid in the dirt, crying out to God. And God said, I'm going to destroy them. They're such a rebellious, stiff-necked people. He says to Moses, literally this phrase, leave me alone that my anger may burn. What a terrifying thing to hear from God. Leave me alone. It's not what we're used to God saying. Going to go spend some quiet time with the Lord. And the first thing you hear is, leave me alone. And he says, leave me alone. Why? That my anger may burn. But see, Moses was the consummate intercessor. He understood what God was saying, that if left alone, his anger will burn. So what he needed was someone to insert himself in his presence and say, God, don't do it, and begin to cry out on behalf of the people. And he began to appeal to God's character, and he said, God, don't forget, your your reputation is on the line. You brought these people out of Egypt, and everybody knows that by your miraculous right hand, you brought them out, only to kill them in the wilderness. Lord, think of your reputation. And he continues to pray and cry out to God, and finally God relents, and he says, now I will send an angel before you, but I I myself will not go. I cannot send my presence before you. And Moses, again, as an intercessor, he said, God, we can't do it. Lord, if you're not going, we aren't going. I don't want the promises without your presence. And he keeps in the pocket. Most people would have been satisfied with the answer to the first prayer. My goodness, you just saved an entire nation from annihilation. But with Moses, it wasn't enough. He said, God, I don't want just salvation. We have to have your presence. And God relents and says, I'll go with you. And then Moses comes off the mountain. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 10. Moses said this, I've been up on the mountain for 40 days in the dust, crying out for you in fasting and prayer. And it was not God's will to destroy you. Now I read that and think, what? If it wasn't God's will, why did it take 80 days of fasting and intercession to save this nation? And I'm telling you, the answer to that question is one of the major keys of intercession. The answer to that question 
is what shifts history. It was not God's will, but their behavior demanded it. And Moses stepped in and absorbed it. Moses stepped in as an intercessor. And you know what he said to God when he got back up on the mountain? The first thing he said, in the text, I don't know if there was other things, but he threw himself before God and he said, God, if you don't save them, then send me to hell too. I don't even understand that. His burden was so great. God had offered him such a lofty offer. I will make a new nation out of you. I'm still going to fulfill my promises, but it's going to come through you. And all of history will remember you were the father of this great nation. And Moses said, no. Why? Because he was an intercessor. He was a mediator. He carried them on his heart. He was one that stood between God and man. He was the ultimate priest at that time, crying out. And God relented and allowed them to come into the promised land because one man stood before a nation that deserved judgment. Yet the whole time, it was never God's desire. Well, if it wasn't God's desire, why did it demand that Moses prayed for 80 days? It's noon, I'll tell you next week. <laughs> no. Who'll give me five minutes? Five, 10, 15, 20, 25, no, I'll skip. Okay. Here's the thing. What Moses, when Moses stepped into that place and was willing to literally give his soul, we have a couple of people in Scripture. We have Moses, we have Paul. Paul said the same thing. He said, God, he said, I would, I would be willing to give my soul. He said it in Romans. I'd be willing to give my soul for Israel to be saved. And in that passage, Paul prophesied the salvation of Israel. He said, all of Israel will be saved. Now, you can look at that several ways. You know, is it every person of Jewish blood will eventually be saved? Or is, I believe what Paul is saying is that revival will come to that nation, and that nation will be saved. Why could Paul say that so surely? Because of the vow he took. There was something that happened in Paul's heart. And when God finds a man or a woman that is willing to go to that degree, God has what he needs to fulfill his purposes. It was never God's desire to destroy Israel, but he would have. There are things that God does that he doesn't want to do, and God doesn't always get what he wants. He is not willing that any should perish. In other words, he, it's not his desire that some perish, but we know that some do. And it's because God is looking for an intercessor to stand on their behalf. And what God needed was somebody whose will was so given over to this thing that God could use their will to do his will. There was something, it, it wasn't that Moses' intercession changed the heart of God. God never wanted to destroy him. Moses said that. So if, it, if 80 days of fasting intercession didn't change Moses, what did it change? I would propose to you, it changed Moses. It changed something in him. It was in that battle that God was creating something in a man that he could use as a foundation through which he could move in a nation. It's why it says of Jesus with loud cries and petitions, he made his request known unto God and he was heard because of his reverent 
submission. It was that yieldedness that allowed God to begin to move. Moses said he would be willing to go to hell. Paul said he would be willing to go to hell. And Jesus did. Jesus not only was willing to give his life, but it says he went into Sheol. He was, he, he, he was made sin for us. He took the full penalty upon us. That is what it means to be an intercessor. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He went to hell and back for you. And he is God's word to you. That's how committed I am to you. I will go to hell and back, literally. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And what he's looking for is those who stand with me so you know I'm quitting. He, he, we come to Mount Zion and what he's looking for are others who will take on the heart of an intercessor and carry his heart for people. So Lord, we just ask God that you would deal with our hearts, Lord. And Lord, help us to see this principle. Lord, I'm asking God that in the coming days you'd begin to grow a revelation of the principle of intercession in this house, Lord. God, that we would be a people so gripped by your purposes we would be like a Moses, a Paul, and we would embody the heart of Jesus. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.